Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1. A number of years ago, there was a campaign launched called Keep America Beautiful. Now, it had to do with uh, some of the early uh, Earth Days that were uh, proclaimed. And when it was launched, there was a television commercial. Some of you may be old enough to remember this. It was uh, considered and voted one of the 50 greatest commercials of all time. I don't know how you'd do that until the end of time, but I guess up until that time. And uh, it was dubbed something that's not politically correct in our day, but it was dubbed the crying Indian. You may remember it. What, what you saw was uh, a Native American uh, paddling his canoe on a river, and uh, it was only a one-minute commercial. And on that river was a bunch of debris that was floating all around. And then uh, you see him uh, get up on a cliff, and there's, you know, he's, there's smog and smoke and uh, trash and all kinds of things like that. And then it pans in on his face that is virtually emotionless except for one tear going down his cheek. It was a very effective uh, commercial. And uh, the, the man who uh, played that Native American is named Iron Eyes Cody. And uh, he was considered by many the face of uh, the Native Americans. He's got a, a star in the Hollywood's Walk of Fame. He starred back with uh, uh, people in, in cowboy movies like uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and John Wayne. Uh, he was considered Hollywood's favorite Native American. There were several Native Americans, though, that as they saw him, they said there's something not quite right here. Ones like Jay Silverheels, maybe you remember him. Who was that? Tonto. Okay, thank you. We're, we're getting into ancient trivia now for a moment, but... But he and, and uh, there were several others that expressed some concern uh, in terms of the man's heritage to the point that a reporter visited Iron Eyes Cody's hometown and he made a startling discovery. Both of his parents were full-blooded Italians. <laughs> now, evidently, his hometown was so invested in their, their boy making good in Hollywood that nobody ever said anything. But here, here's the real irony. 
was that even after that was discovered and made public, he still would not admit the truth. And he continued to wear his braided wig, headdress, and moccasins and kept talking about his connection to the Great Spirit. Now, when I, when I read about that, I thought of a couple of things and, uh, you know, spiritual implications. My, my children used to say, Dad, you see an illustration in everything. Well, a couple of things came to my mind. One is, in terms of Christianity, Christ followers, how many people who outwardly look like Christ followers, maybe they've got the pedigree, they've got the, the look, they go to church and so on, but they really don't have a relationship with Christ. And then the second question is how many who really do know Christ are faking it just as much here on Sunday and living a, a life that is not honoring to Christ the rest of the week or at times during the week or maybe just apathetic about the faith. In the passage today, we see the Apostle Paul praying for the people in Ephesus. Some of them, I feel quite confident in saying this, because it has always been the case, although less so when there's persecution, but some of them were probably just faking it. I want you to notice what he prays for in this text. Beginning with verse 15. He says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, will you, <clears throat> in these next few moments, using your word and by your spirit, will you peel back any layers that are pretending that we have been denying 
Will you show us if our faith is genuine? And if it's not, will you reveal that, Lord? And will you grant us the gift of faith? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, I want you to look at these words of encouragement. Paul, Paul is a good pastor. Uh, he he has, has learned the, the keys of being a good pastor. He planted churches. He went back to encourage them. He wrote them to uh, encourage them to deal with issues, but also to, to bring them along. And we're going to, going to later in in the book of Ephesians, see some of the things that needed to be corrected and uh, reinforced. Uh, and we're going to see that from the Apostle Paul. But, but here's the question. Uh, what could he commend the Ephesians for? There were some good things there. He knew them very well. But there were also weaknesses. Weaknesses that he would address. And so I want you to notice what he what he commends them for, and then how he deals with the bigger picture of how do you, how do you encourage someone along when you know that there's some, some major gaps there that they need to deal with. The first thing we, we've got to notice, and this fits with our, our uh, verse of the year, uh, if you remember our verse of the year, a new commandment I give you to love one another just as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And we spent all last summer talking about 1 Corinthians 13 and, and, and how this applies and so on. Look at the, the, the first thing that he says here in verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, he has begun with a connecting phrase. It's not a therefore, but it's, uh, it's similar. When, when you see, for this reason, you've got to look back and say, for what reason? What's he referring back to? And, and what you will, will notice is that he's, he's talking about uh, their faith. But he has just given this amazing statement of theology here. And he's talked to them about how they were chosen before the foundation of the world. How they've been adopted as sons of God. He's talked to them about their identity. About how the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of their inheritance in Christ. He's the security for that. So based on all of that, and remember, the, the, the reason he said all those things, uh, and for those of you that haven't been with us the last few weeks, the, the Ephesians, the, the people in, uh, the Christians in Ephesus were in a, a very difficult situation. They were in a minority, but not only that, in a hostile environment. Toward their faith. So he begins with, with all of this amazing theology 
to encourage them along and say, look, this is who you are. And you're worshiping a God who is in control of things, no matter what it looks like right now. And so he, he talks about their faith and their love for one another. Jesus affirmed that. And Paul affirms it here, that, that if, if faith is genuine, then there will be love for one another. If there is no love for one another, we see elsewhere in the New Testament, then you're not of God. And you're a liar. So that's the, the key there in terms of uh, their identity in Christ. If, if all there is is some kind of uh, a faith out there but, but no love, then it, it lacks authenticity. It's not real. And then it's just some kind of a, an intellectual uh, exercise. But he, he commends them. He talks about their love for one another. But even with that, they weren't perfect. So how do you give encouragement that is genuine when there are these gaps? He will spend most of the rest of the letter giving corrective instruction. So how do you encourage? Look what he does. Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now think about that. What's our tendency? Our tendency is to, to point out the, the negative gaps first. <laughs> Think, think about with, with uh, you know, it's, it's a big temptation if you have children, you know, and you begin to see, every, every time you see them, you see the same flaw, you know, and pretty soon, if you're not careful, that flaw becomes like a badge right here that you, you know, your eye just goes to it immediately. And then, what do we tend to do if we want to encourage our children along? One of the things that we do, and I've, I've done this. We have four kids, pretty well grown now. But using this phrase, I'm proud of you. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm proud of you. But then when you don't say, I'm proud of you, <laughs> what's that communicating to them? Okay? So look what Paul does here. He doesn't say, I'm, real, I'm really proud of you, you guys. He says, I'm thankful for you. And I got to thinking, I wish somebody had told me that when my kids were little. That I could have, I, I could have put that on every card to them. I could have communicated that to them. Because that never changes, right? And, and the apostle Paul, I think, is it's brilliant as a pastor here because he's saying, I, I thank my God when, when you're brought to my mind. Now, what's amazing is that uh, most of his other letters 
that's how he starts out. He has the greeting, and then right after that, boom, I'm thankful. This letter, he's got a a 203-word sentence before he gets to that. But he does get to it. And so, one commentator uh, put it this way, and I think think this is accurate. He says, by giving thanks for the good in others that he knows to be imperfect, Paul indicates that with his eyes of faith, he sees them robed in Christ's righteousness. You see what the commentator's saying? That he's not just, he's not looking at that, that black mark and all the ways they still need to grow and, and things like that. At least not first. It's not the first thing he sees. But instead he looks at them and he sees them as, these are, these are my brothers, literally brothers and sisters in Christ who are made in the image of God, who have been adopted into our family. And for that, I'm thankful for you. So you want to encourage somebody? Tell them you're thankful. Now, now, now that I've said that, though, you're going to have to be careful because, you know, you, you don't want to say to somebody right after church, I'm thankful for you, and them say, oh, you're not proud of me too? You know, don't... Being thankful doesn't mean you're not proud of them, okay? Let's just stipulate that. But what a wonderful way that you can always speak to others in that way. Now, let's take a look at the content of his prayer. Uh, Again, in most of his letters, he starts out affirming his prayer and thanksgiving. So, what he says is this, verse 17. He talks about a knowledge of God himself that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. A knowledge of God himself. He's praying that that the Ephesians will have a, a genuine knowledge of God. Now, British theologian J.I. Packer wrote what most consider to be a classic a number of years ago. But I think the content of that book has had as much impact on, on my ministry as anything else. And, and it's, very, it's very simple. He makes the distinction between knowing about God and knowing God. Sounds simple, doesn't it? And the book is Knowing God. That's the name of it. But he says, you know, he, he talks about what, what knowing God is not and what it truly is. And there is that distinction. We can have a lot of knowledge about God and not really know Him, not really be in relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And to me, the most powerful place that's attested to is in James, where he says, you you believe God is one? 
You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. See what James is saying? There's a lot of knowledge about God that even the demons, you know, everything we're saying here today, demons know about that, but they're not in a saving relationship with Christ. They're not going to be in heaven. And so we've got to make sure that our knowledge is not just an intellectual knowledge about Him, but it is a knowledge of Him. And that's what, that's what Paul is praying for here. And then he talks about a knowledge of the hope, the first part of 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, for the believer, there's uh, two ki- at least two kinds of hope. Uh, there's hope for now, for this life, and hope for the next life. So the Ephesians, remember that in that first chapter, he's, he's given them reason they can hope. You've been adopted as sons. You've been chosen by God, not because of how great you are. He's going to emphasize that in chapter 2. Not, not, not because for any reason except his great love for you that he set upon you. I don't know if I remember in my lifetime uh, being around as many people who are without hope as right now in our country. Did anybody else feel that way? I, I, I just sense, and there are many, many dynamics of this, but I sense that many people are um, so concerned about our world feeling it's just spinning out of control. And for some of you, it's, it's not the, the big cosmic picture of a world spinning out of control. Maybe you have some concern on that level, but it's in your own lives you're experiencing things that just seems like that. This is out of control. It's one thing after another. It's wave after wave of things hitting me or hitting a family member or us as a family. There is hope. God is in control. Now here's the thing. If he is not in control, there is no hope. There is reason for despair if God is not in control. The, the, uh, to pray to a God that is not in control is useless. What's the point? And yet, this book, the Bible, Ephesians attests to the fact that this is a sovereign God. And for you Ephesians, Paul is saying, look, the one who adopted you, 
It was in His plan before the foundation of this world. If you put your faith in a God who's sovereign, who has a plan, and who always does what's best for His people, then we don't, we don't have to lose hope. Now look, we, I hope you paid attention to what we just sang. We'll stand as children of the promise. We'll fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. If you are without hope, it's very possible you're walking by sight and not by faith. Because you're looking at the circumstances of this world and you're judging what kind of a God he is rather than looking at what kind of a God he is and judging the circumstances of the world in light of that. And that's where we need to be. We know he does what's best for his children, but look, don't depend on looking at circumstances to say, yeah, I can, I can tell how this is best for me as his child. Let me ask you this. When you were a child, if, if you had parents that wanted what was best for you and they did their very best to, to provide for those circumstances, did you always understand it? I didn't. In fact, there were times that, that if, if I had to prove that, yeah, the, you know, this is best for me, I would have said, I don't get it. This can't be best for me. I know better. But you know what? Actually, my father and mother knew better. And that's the case with the Father who is in heaven. He does what's best for his children, whether we can recognize it or not. And we've got to make that decision. Are we going to believe that? Or are we going to choose to walk by sight? And then Paul continues to pray, speaking of the riches of his inheritance, the second part of verse 18. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? When this life is over, they'll receive their inheritance that has been guaranteed to them, not by their works, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of them. And you know what? We know so little about those blessings now. Remember this summer in 1 Corinthians 13, the, the phrase, now I know in part, then I will know fully. I want you to think of the very best things about church that you experience. Those, those of you that have church experience and you've had good experiences, Think of the very best. Think of, think of those moments. Maybe you had some today, earlier in worship. Think of those moments where it either becomes an emotional moment or a truth hits you or you see love from someone being poured out upon you and you, you, you realize that you are loved and cared for. 
Think of the very best of those. But understand this. Those are only a glimpse. They're a faint shadow of the riches of his glorious inheritance that we will experience forever. So here's what you do. You think of those moments, and and if you have a moment when the choir's singing or when we're singing or something like that, and and you, you sense that, then multiply it by a million. And really, you multiply it by infinity, but we, we don't get infinity, so I picked a number. A million millions, it's going to be beyond what we can ever imagine here. And that's what he is praying that they will grasp onto. In their discouragement, living there in Ephesus, Understand, yes, there are good things in this life, but they don't begin to compare to what we will experience forever. And then he talks about, in his prayer, his power. Verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now remember in Ephesus that there were all kinds of cults and magic arts and all of them made their own claims to power, some kind of a, a, a power, uh, whether it was a magical power or a power from this idol or or uh, from uh, something that you would experience here in this temple. And Paul is praying that they will experience the true power. The word there, dunamis, dynamite. And he's going to, he uses that a lot in his letters. Now, hopelessness is sometimes a result of feeling a powerlessness. In other words, when you know, we come to that conclusion that this is out of my hands, I can't do anything about this. Now, we often talk about control being an illusion. It is. But, you know, there's that, there's that existential moment when, you know, you're in some kind of a situation, you say, whoa. I can't, do, I can't do anything about this. And Paul is saying, you know what? There is, a, there is a power available to you. Too many believers, I'm sad to say, feel just a lack of spiritual power, a dryness, an inability to overcome a sin in our lives, an inability to progress in the faith, to see God really working. One of our problems is underestimating the power that lives within us. Because we have union with Christ, which is what this first chapter is about, because we have union with Christ, the same power dwells within us that brought Jesus from being dead to alive. It's the same power. 
power. And that's what Paul is reminding them of. Look, that, that power, that's within you. You know, I, I haven't taken you to uh, Revelation yet, but it's time. Pertaining to the church in Ephesus, it's a, it's a sad passage. We'll probably revisit it again before we leave Ephesians. But it's a passage where they're being threatened with their lampstand being removed. And here's what it says in Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and here's, here's what you need to hear. Speaking to the church in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then here is the hope. Here's the hopeful part of that. Verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remembering that first love. Have you ever sat there on your wedding anniversary and look through that book? Back when Connie and I were married, it was, that was, it was before videos, probably before film, I don't know. But, <laughs> we, you know, the thing was to have big books. And once in a while... We will get that out. I try not to show it to anyone because people always say, oh, Connie looks just the same. <laughs> but, you know, here's how it strikes me. I don't know if you, you ever do this. But I can't look at those pictures and see pictures of myself and, and me looking at my wife without remembering what it was like. And that's a good thing. It's always a positive thing. It helps me remember that first love. And that's what, that's what the Word is saying here that that's what we need to go back to. May God help us never to abandon our first love of Christ. And if we have fallen, to repent and do what we did at first. Let's bow together.
Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for that um, amazing prayer that you inspired Paul to pray for the Ephesians. And will you help us to pray this for ourselves, for one another, and to always be thankful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.